Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast, I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. If you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple iTunes or wherever else you listen to this podcast. You can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support it directly on Patreon, where patrons of this podcast receive exclusive behind-the-scenes content and special episodes. Thanks for your support. This episode of the Airspace Engineering Podcast is brought to you by KDC Resource. Are you currently looking to fill a vacancy and will settle for no less than the best engineering talent? Then look no further. KDC Resource are the experts in engineering recruitment for the airspace and defense sector. For more than 15 years, KDC has been matching the very best engineers with the biggest names in the industry, from Airbus Group and GKN Aerospace to Cobham and BAE Systems, plus a whole host of smaller companies working on very hard engineering problems. KDC's deep talent pool of aerospace engineers means they are perfectly poised to meet your particular needs with the ideal candidate. In a time of unprecedented engineering skills shortage, KDC Resource will give you an edge over your competitors in the recruitment market. To find out how KDC Resource can help you hire the best engineering talent, visit kdcresource.com forward slash podcast. This episode is also sponsored by stressebook.com, which is an online hub for you if you're interested in aerospace stress engineering. Stressebook.com provides world-class engineering services and online courses on the stress analysis of aircraft structures, as well as a free ebook and blog no matter if you're a junior or senior structural analyst, StressEbook.com provides you with the skills and know-how to become a champion in your workplace. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Today I'm talking to Mark Cutler. Mark has a PhD in Robotics and Autonomous Systems from MIT and currently works for the California-based startup Kitty Hawk, backed by Google founder Larry Page. Mark is an expert in unmanned air vehicles, also known as UAVs, and has researched multiple aspects of UAV technology from designing and building his own novel quadrotor for aerobatic flight to developing machine learning algorithms for autonomous systems. At Kitty Hawk, he is applying his expertise in rotorcraft to create the next generation of vehicles for everyday flight. Kitty Hawk are currently designing, testing and building all-electric vertical takeoff and landing products for work and play. For example, their first product, called the Cora, is an air taxi that could one day bring us an Uber-like service for the sky. And Kitty Hawk is currently in the first stages of testing this flight vehicle and service in New Zealand. In this episode of the Airspace Engineering Podcast, Mark and I talk about his diverse background in UAVs, the promises of machine learning for autonomous flight, and the future of personalized flying. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mark Cutler. All right, so I'm here with Dr. Mark Cutler. Mark, I'm really happy to be speaking to you today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. 
So Mark, you're currently an engineer for the California-based startup Kitty Hawk, a company that we'll discuss in, in a short while. But to begin, why don't you tell listeners a little bit about your engineering background and what you did before your time at Kitty Hawk? Sure thing. Uh, yeah, so I've always wanted to be an airplane engineer ever since I was five years old. I remember wanting to design airplanes. I always thought I would be an aerodynamicist uh, until I took fluid dynamics in college and realized that that was not the course for me. Uh, and I have since pivoted and uh, now I'm, I consider myself a roboticist. So I, I love all things robotics related, uh, especially the programming aspect, the sensors and control aspects of robotics. Uh, and then the fact that I get to work on flying robots is just icing on the cake. Um, so prior to coming to Kitty Hawk, uh, I was spent all my time in university and I'm glad to finally be uh, at a real company, con hopefully contributing to society in some sort of meaningful way. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, I um, when I started university, I basically thought the same. I was really interested in, in, aer in aerodynamics, at least theoretically, I thought that was what I was interested in. And then I started doing the courses and realized this is actually not for me. And that basically ended up in structural mechanics. But uh, yeah, so that's a shared shared thought interest that we both have. So throughout your studies, um, you were very prolific in researching, designing and building unmanned aerial vehicles, which are also most of the time known as UAVs. So I'd like to start with some of the basics on UAVs, as well as some examples of your research. So first, what is included under the broad umbrella of UAVs? Uh, apart from the big drones you know, that we know from the military, what else are they being used for? Sure. So, uh, I mean, first off, UAV, unmanned aerial vehicle. Uh, strictly from the definition, I consider a UAV anything that flies that doesn't have a person on it. So that can range from extremely small, so that Harvard has had a, a project for a long time building a RoboBee. Uh, we're trying to build a UAV the size of a, of a insect that can fly around autonomously, ranging all the way to the very big. So we've got, as an example, Facebook has, a, a, has an enormous solar-powered UAV called Aquila that's they're trying to beam internet down to the world from high-flying high um, solar-powered UAVs. So it's extremely broad. Typically, when people say UAVs, you would think of something that has some sort of automation, although that's not necessarily the case. So that the military's UAVs are often actually just remotely piloted, not, not a whole lot of fancy automation. But uh, apart from the military, they're, in theory, they're used for all sorts of applications. Some people cite search and rescue, inspection, uh, anywhere where you need some sort of aerial view. In practice, um, they're mostly used for fun. I think if you were to lay out all the number of UAVs, the vast majority are just hobby drones that people fly around for fun. Uh, but the hope is that soon they become, a lot of them become more practical than they are now. Yeah, why do you think that, I mean, in recent years, we've seen quite a big proliferation of these small rotorcraft in the hobbyist marketplace, and then I guess also in a research setting. Why is that? Has there been some sort of techno technological shift that has made them feasible? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in my mind, the, the, uh, the UAV, or especially the rotorcraft, the, the multi-rotor revolution, if you want to call it that, is driven strictly from the smartphone. It's the, the small, cheap sensors and computation that were driven by this desire for personal electronics, 
coming from the smartphone that somebody realized you could now build a UAV that was previously impossible. So the, the interesting thing about a rotorcraft or a multi-rotor is that it's dynamically unstable. So unless you have some sort of sensor on board and some sort of computation, you can't, you can't actually just fly these remotely. So it's not the same thing as a, uh, you know, a remote-controlled airplane that you can fly with a little bit of skill, but it's, you need this onboard computation. And, and since uh, these sensors and processors are so cheap now, it's easy to build uh, a feedback control system that will stabilize this type of airplane. And, and what it's done is it's now lowered the bar, uh, the, the entry bar to getting something in the air, where previously you had to get some skill to fly a remote control helicopter or an airplane. Now you can just buy something off the shelf and it requires almost no skill to fly. And that's really what has enabled this, this rapid rise, both in academia and in uh, and in the commercial industry of these multi-rotors. So the fact that they're dynamically unstable, is that partly then also the reason why they're so interesting uh, in the academic setting, that it's basically a test bed to, to basically experiment with different control algorithms and perhaps also with machine learning? Uh, a little bit. It's actually the most, the most reason that they are popular in academia is that they're mechanically simple. There's basically not a whole lot you can break. So you can go fly these things into the wall, and then all the, maybe you replace a propeller, but, uh, but then you keep flying them. So, yeah, there's a little bit of interesting from, from the unsteady control phenomenon, but there are lots of other robots that are also dynamically unstable, where we've, we've learned a lot of this before. But really, it's the, it's the simplicity that makes it so, so popular. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So many listeners will probably be aware of how gliders use thermals for lift. And I was reading through some of your bachelor's thesis work and you'd applied a similar concept to UAVs. So how can UAVs benefit from thermals and what was the technical solution that you proposed? Uh, yeah, so more broadly, I think there's, there's basically three different ways that a UAV can extract energy from the air. So for our UAV to be flying, you need some energy. You need to put some energy into the system. Typically, this is from fuel or battery. Those are a finite length for which you can fly. And what we're trying to do, or what we're trying to do in that research, is is mimic somewhat of how nature uh, allows birds to fly without actually putting energy, putting their own energy into the system. And uh, generally, there are three different ways. So you have thermals, rising, big rising pockets of air. You've got what's called ridge lifts. So if you have air blowing towards a mountain, once it hits the mountain, the air goes up. You can take advantage of that upward component of the air to extract energy. And then finally, most interesting, you have uh, what you call gust or gradient lift. There's this concept called dynamic soaring, which is uh, potentially more complicated than we need to explain here. But the general idea is that uh, by taking advantage of a gradient in the air, you can actually extract some energy of the air. That's how uh, many birds fly close to the ground by taking advantage of this gradient lift. Uh, and the research I did as, a, as an undergrad was actually in the, the ridge lift. So it was proposing if you have some area of interest that you want to survey and you might be close to some mountainous ranges, you could actually uh, cast this as an optimization problem and say, I want to trade off extracting energy from this ridge lift by flying close to the mountain and then also exploring or uh, observing the area I'm supposed to be observing. And in theory, you should be able to fly much longer, potentially even indefin indefinitely by extracting this energy 
from the air. And uh, I think in general, energy extraction is a fascinating area. And I think that that can be a huge benefit to UAVs if we really come up with some elegant solutions to these problems. Right. But in this case, they these UAVs, so they had wings in this case, just kind of like a glider would. They wouldn't be rotorcrafts, or, or am I mistaken? No, that's a very good point. Yeah. So uh, theoretically, you could extract energy in the air also from a rotorcraft. The unfortunate dynamics work out that rotorcraft are extremely inefficient. You're pushing a lot of air down, and so you need a lot of energy from the air to, ex to extract to make any sort of useful progress. So in this case, yes, we're, uh, we're typically talking about sailplanes. These are, these are the type of airplanes with very high aspect ratio wings where you think they're ultra efficient already and all we need is extracting a little bit of energy from the air to uh, get back the energy that we are losing due to uh, flying out of the sky basically. Right okay yeah that makes sense. So and then as, if, as part of your master's thesis you then turn to to rotorcrafts or quad rotors in this case and I've, I've read that they were then covered by the technology outlet Gizmodo, which must have been very cool for you to see your re research basically in the popular media. But what are the co components that go into a quad rotor? And uh, what are quad rotors good at? And what are they usually used for? Yeah, I actually really like this topic because it's uh, commonly misunderstood. So a quad rotor is you know, one of the simplest forms of a the broader category of multi-rotor, basically just a vehicle with multiple sets of rotors on it. So quad rotor has four rotors. Um, again, coming back to our conversation earlier about the smartphone and sensors, these uh, you weren't able to build a vehicle like this, say, 20 years ago, or it would have been very difficult because of the, the cost of the sensors that you would need and the complexity of the, uh, of the computation. Now, with cheap sensors and computation, we can build these extremely cheaply. They're very easy to control with, with modern processors. Um, what they're good at is they're just they're so easy to build. There's literally four moving parts in a quadrotor if you're using brushless electric motors. So you only have the motor, which is rigidly attached to a propeller. You only have these four moving objects, and you can just attach those to any, any imaginable frame. I've seen people build quad rotors with carrots as frames or <laughs> ice as frames. I and mean, literally, you can, you can do anything. You just attach these motors, and it flies it around. And that's what makes it such an awesome aerial platform for academia. You don't have to worry about the flight dynamics, once you get that, once you get that control narrowed down, you can just you can put anything you want on these things. When you crash them, they're easy to, to fix and rebuild, and uh, they're just a fascinating um, platform in that aspect. What uh, what they're really bad at is being efficient. So uh, they're not the say helicopter of the future. They're actually less efficient than a helicopter, um, but you get this added benefit. Get, or impressive benefit of mechanical simplicity, and that's really what they are good at. Okay, yeah. So then you just mentioned one of the drawbacks in that they aren't as efficient as, as helicopters are. And um, as far as I'm aware, you developed a variable pitch quad rotor, and to me, I, you know, I, I'm, I don't have a strong background in quad rotors, and I would have just assumed that people would have developed this a long time ago, given that helicopters and even turbine, turbine blades often have some form of pitch control 
to optimize the angle of attack of the airfoil. Why wasn't this used on earlier quad rotors? And what are the benefits of that of the variable pitch quad rotor that you developed? Yeah, the, uh, this is a super fun project. It was mostly uh, it was a good master's project. Um, I mean, the, the reason it hadn't been done before is because it's not really that good of an idea. Um, <laughs> but it's but it was quite fun. It was it was something where we could uh, we could make some cool videos. These were this is what was picked up by Gizmodo, um, which was which was quite fun to see. Um, but yeah, it's the idea is that you don't need it, and so that's why people haven't done it before. Okay. Um, you know, the advantages of the quad rotor is you can get away with fixed pitch propellers, and so it's so it's very mechanically simple. What we explored in this work was there are some limitations to fixed pitch propellers. So you can't, if you want to change the amount of thrust you are generating with your rotors, which is how you develop, how you do all sorts of control uh, or all the control, uh, you're limited to your only options to speed up or slow down the motor. And so physics is not on your side there. You have to overcome the inertia of the motor and the propeller. If you instead add this one extra actuator being able to change the pitch of the propeller, you can actually get near instantaneous thrust. So, yeah, there's, there's potentially some small benefit of actually being more efficient in certain areas for us. But for this work, I was more interested in the fast actuation aspect. So being able to change thrust almost instantaneously and then also being able to generate negative thrust, which was kind of the coolest part of this. So we were able to fly upside down, did some autonomous flipping, um, and do things that you couldn't do with a typical quad rotor. Yeah, and I think I saw on on your website I saw some of uh, some of the videos about of of these quad rotors flying. And there's I think there's a direct comparison between the variable pitch quad rotor and the fixed pitch quad rotor. And it's quite impressive in that the oscillations in in terms of the the flight profile that once you once you're trying to go to a target path or target point that the variable pitch quadrotor is much quicker at, at stabilizing. So I guess that is one of the main benefits of the variable pitch in this case. Uh, correct, yeah. And that was somewhat of a, of a special case. You know, that particular instance we were saying, I'm, I'm going to fly up quickly and then I want to stop. And so if you're, if you're limited to fixed pitch propellers, at best, if you want to stop, you just slow down your rotors to near zero and you let gravity catch you. Uh, what we were showing is that with variable pitch propellers, you can actually uh, very briefly change the pitch of your propellers to be negative to thrust upwards and stop almost instantaneously. Um, I think for any given project, you have, to, you have to very seriously weigh the mechanical complexity, though, that that adds. Um, so it was a fun research project that I'm not surprised that we're not seeing a whole bunch of variable pitch quadrotors out on the market. Uh, since then, I've seen there have been a couple of commercial ones that have been sold. I don't think they've been extremely successful, but uh, it was certainly a fun project. Right. And so what really struck me is that you developed your own autopilot. And in layman's terms, could you describe some of the challenges in developing an autopilot and how your particular autopilot is now being used? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. So when we started this project, um, we needed, I mean, you need some way to control this thing, right? We need some, some computational uh, device and this was back in 2010 and there weren't a whole lot of open source autopilots around. I think if I started today it would be a little bit different story. Um, but there I just what we did to get it working is just grab a basically an Arduino, uh, a little bit fancier version of an Arduino, uh, a simple microprocessor and then a simple uh, rate gyro which is actually the only sensor that we needed and um, 
just soldered these two devices together and then wrote a bunch of code so that I mean, the code is the fancy part, but that's what, um, and that's kind of the meat of the autopilot, but, but we were able to get this initial prototype was kind of hacked together. It was, uh, it was, it was, you know, the sensor was soldered to the board and there were a bunch of things that could break. Uh, and there was another member of my lab who had dabbled around with circuit design. Um, and nobody in this lab came from the mechanical or an electrical background where most of us were mechanical engineers or CS students. Um, so there wasn't a strong electrical engineering presence, uh, but he kind of inspired me to try to learn. And so this was mostly just a for fun aspect on the side, but I basically realized that it wasn't too hard to figure out how to lay out a circuit board. And so I was able to put all these components uh, onto my own circuit board. And then uh, very quickly that kind of became the de facto autopilot for our lab to use um, and I think it's still being flown at my at my lab at MIT. Um, they might have moved on to something different by now, but uh, for a long time that was flying all our autopilot, all our um, autonomous vehicles in that lab. Yeah, and it must have been a great learning experience as well. I guess you know that was that's one of the great things you get to you get to tinker around with you know the electronics and with coding, and it all goes into mechanical systems. So it's a real it's a, it's a really neat uh, synthesis of different aspects of engineering. And uh, in general, what I find really interesting about the UAV community is that there is a very nice syn synthesis of you know hardware and software engineering and the theoretical and the practical side of things. And if someone in the audience, maybe young or old, is interested in delving a bit deeper into the field and perhaps even you know, striking it up as a hobby or even a university project, how would you recommend that they go about that? Yeah, I, I, I think the first thing I would do is build my own quadrotor. I mean, these are, like we were talking earlier, they're very, they're very simple to build, mechanically speaking, and it's a, it's a super interesting experience. So you can take a variety of, project, of uh, ways of doing that. You could you know, buy all the components and buy a controller off the shelf and, and not learn any coding. You could take something. You could uh, take uh, maybe a slightly different approach and, and buy an autopilot but modify the source code or modify the gains. Um, but I think there are all sorts of different things you could do once you have your own uh, quadrator as far as exploring how does the feedback control system work, how, does, how do all the various components work, that that's that's probably where I would get started. Yeah, so it's very much a learning by doing approach, which is Absolutely. really the best way of learning. Okay, so so finally for your PhD thesis, you then turn to machine learning, and to me, as you know, a non-expert in in that field, it seems like machine learning, you know, is all over the news in recent years, mostly regarding of how AI, art artificial intelligence, and automation will be taking jobs in the near or the long-term future. But going beyond all the buzz, what exactly is machine learning and how can it be used for autonomous vehicles like UAVs? Yeah, good question. There, uh, there has been a lot of hype around AI. Um, to me, machine learning is really just a very fancy function approximator. Really, uh, what we're trying to do in machine learning is take typically large amounts of data and find patterns in it. So you're trying to have the computer see what is very difficult for humans to see because it's multidimensional and there's so much data. Uh, but, but under the hood, it's really just, it's a really fancy function approximator. Uh, but that's still extremely useful in a lot of cases, right? I mean, it's, it's been super good at facial recognition, at voice recognition, at lots of places where you just, you have a lot of data and you want to find very consistent patterns. For UAVs or for all sorts of autonomous vehicles, 
there are lots of applications, especially now that we have low-cost sensors where we can gather tons and tons of data. So hopefully in the future, we can use machine learning more for controller development, for estimation development, for analysis of the data that we collect. Um, we're really just getting started on moving away from kind of this human-coded aspect of, of uh, autonomous vehicles to more of a data-driven or a data um, yeah, data-driven development where now that computers start, in some sense, coding themselves, although really they're just creating fancy function approximators that are now doing the hard work for the people. So when you're saying that computers could potentially you know, be coding themselves, does that mean that you basically have a computer that is almost kind of, you know, tinkering in a way, trying to explore perhaps the design space, and then, as you said, curve-fitting, uh, some sort of model to be then to be able to move more efficiently in that design space is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I, I should be careful when I say that. So, uh, what, what we are not seeing and is at best extremely far away is computers you know, being in general intelligent and actually you know developing a program by themselves. Where we're getting to though is a, a place where the people no longer have to say uh, dictate the gains of a specific controller or dictate the path that a car is going to take through an urban environment. And we're getting to the point where a computer can take a huge corpus of data and say, actually, I can, I can do that. I can give you back the, the path to follow or I can give you back the controller gains that are going to optimize for some objective function. All right, so I guess, yeah, the, in the example you gave in terms of the car, that obviously makes sense. If, yeah, if a lot of people are driving along a certain route, then there's the natural data flow is already there. And then I guess, yeah, you could data mine it. You can, you can fit some form of statistical regression to it to find perhaps an optimum. But then it's, it, it seems to me that you're then very dependent on these large sample sizes. I mean, how large do these sample sizes have to be? And is that perhaps a drawback of this approach? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, typically they are—they're quite large. I mean, the more data, the better. Certainly, um, a lot of these deep neural networks that you hear about or deep learning is is synonymous with deep amounts of data. So you need because this function approximator is so big, there's so many parameters that the computer is fitting. You really run the risk of overfitting your data if you don't have enough. And so in robotics, this is a this is where things get more difficult. Where it's it might be hard to get a, a huge corpus of data of your specific robot working around, which is, which is directly what my PhD was, was looking at. Um, we were trying to do actually solve a slightly harder problem than typical machine learning. It's called reinforcement learning, which is um, machine learning but without the large piece of data or corpus of data before you start. It's basically you're gathering the data as you explore the world. And as you know, it's probably unsurprising to most people, that's quite difficult with a robot for a number of reasons. I mean, number one is you're limited by real time. You can't actually collect data faster than real time. You're limited by hardware. Hardware often breaks. Uh, and then you're just limited by logistics. If you want, you may want to create a whole bunch of data, but you maybe don't have a whole bunch of robots that you can run in parallel. Uh, and the, the key thing that I was working on is trying to utilize simulators uh, to basically bootstrap the process. So no simulator is going to be perfect. You can't actually just run a reinforcement or machine learning algorithm in a simulator and then expect the result to work 
on a real robot because there's always going to be differences between simulation and real life. But what my PhD work explored is uh, taking advantage of simulators while knowing that they might in some ways be inaccurate and still using it to improve learning on uh, physical robots okay. by yeah, starting in the simulator. So it's almost like a little bit incorporating decision-making under uncertainty to, to some regard because you're, you're assuming that the simulated data and the experimental data don't map onto each other one-to-one. -one. And I saw the ro remote control car, um, I think, that you designed as part of your PhD work. And so I was just trying to imagine how the mechanics of this work. So you, you have a remote control car trying to drive around, and it has obviously real-time experimental data because it's driving around and then do you have sim a kind of like a simulation running in the background where now the exper the experiment and the simulation are talking to each other and that way the algorithm learns or how does it exactly work yeah so we don't do things in uh in parallel but basically the learning algorithm starts off in the simulator before you do anything you might as well learn in the simulation because the the costs are extremely low and so what we do is we run this, uh, this is maybe you can consider a big optimization problem, but we, learn, we run this machine learning problem in the simulator and it comes up with a solution, which in this case is a controller. It says, this is how I want the, the car to behave. And then the next thing you do is you just turn that controller on in the real world. And what typically happens is the car will execute that controller and it won't actually behave like the simulator did, but at least it's in the right direction. And then you, you capture the data from the real world and you send that data back to the simulator and you actually improve the simulator by feeding that real data back in and you rerun the optimization problem and you iterate this way from simulator to physical car and back and forth until eventually you come to what what is now the optimum in the real world okay very interesting yeah that makes a lot of sense okay so i guess that mostly covers um your yeah your your uh your academic background, and I, I'm really fascinated to see how, uh, especially the machine learning, will develop in the near-term future. And I presume that to some degree, you're also working on this now for your current employer, Kitty Hawk. Um, as I said before, is a startup company in California backed by Google founder Larry, Larry Page. And most listeners will probably be familiar with Kitty Hawk in North Carolina, which is the location of the Wright brothers' first flight. But what is Kitty Hawk, the company, trying to achieve today? Yes, uh, somewhat audaciously, the, the name Kitty Hawk, what we're trying to connote here is that we are also trying to be first in flight. Now, we're not, uh, obviously, the airplane has been invented, but what we think is missing from current aviation is the accessibility of air travel to everyday users. So while, yes, everybody or a lot of the world may use jetliners from time to time, maybe a few of us fly a lot, but not very many people own their own airplane and not many people, even other people who own their own airplane, use it very much or very efficiently. So what we're trying to do is make airplanes so accessible that everyone can start flying. Oh, nice. So, so you basically mean that people won't even need a license to fly anymore? Oh, I'm sure that uh, at some point, regulations will change and something will, people will, will step in uh, with, at, so Kitty Hawk has two different projects right now and the project I'm working on, uh, which is called the Flyer Project, 
you actually don't need a license to fly that under current regulation. Uh, I, I hope that we're extremely successful and we build a lot of vehicles and that uh, eventually regulation comes in and says, let's, let's regulate this like we regulate cars or something. Uh, but for now, I think the, the current aerial regulation isn't really built around this notion that everyone could fly, especially not that everyone could uh, fly from their own potential backyard, which is what, uh, what our vision is. Right. Okay. So you just mentioned um, the flyer, and uh, I've on the website of Kitty Hawk, I saw that there are currently two projects: the flyer and the Cora. Could you describe to listeners what these two projects, the flyer and the Cora, are, and uh, what the target market of these two vehicles basically is? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I guess taking real quick a step back, so that um, Larry Page, our our founder, is is very passionate about uh, electric vehicles and especially and electric flying vehicles in this case and so our mantra is uh, we're building electric vehicles that take off and land vertically and that are useful to people so ideally in the long run we try, we want to solve traffic congestion um, and by by making aerial vehicles accessible to the masses and we're tackling that in a number of different ways so the, these two projects flyer and Cora are uh, quite different in as far as what we're building, Cora is a is a big vehicle. They recently had this big announcement of how they're flying in New Zealand. They're going to try to become an aerial taxi service. Imagine somewhat of an Uber in the air, where they're uh, where you're you're likely not personally owning this vehicle. You know, a lot of the details are are scarce um, because they're either proprietary or because uh, they're not not totally clear to us yet either. Uh, but the idea is that. This is something that you can call on demand. You probably don't own it, and it flies you around. Flyer, on the other hand, is a is a single seater. It's a an extremely lightweight vehicle. Um, we're we're building it under the U.S. Um, regulations of what's called an ultralight, which is a vehicle that's less than 254 pounds. If it's that light, you actually don't need a pilot's license to fly it, uh, and you can fly it for as long as you're flying for recreation and under certain stipulations like during the daytime and not over populated areas. Uh, and so what, what we're trying to build here is, is a vehicle that anyone with very little prior experience can go and buy and fly because there's a lot of the complexity of flying is now built into the software. So we're taking advantage of all these mach the machine learning and the sensors and all the things we've been talking about so far and applying it to something that you or I could go get in and fly without you know, many hours of flight training and certification like you would need to fly an airplane today. Right. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, that vision of, of the Uber kind of Uber like service for the skies is quite an interesting one. Because, I mean, if you hark back to kind of, you know, science fiction novels, it almost seems like at some point we were promised flying cars and yet, you know, they're not here yet. And I guess this isn't really a flying car to some degree. I imagine it's, I mean, from, from the videos, it looks like basically like a, a larger version of a, of a quad rotor to some degree, although it has more rotors than four. Um, that will basically be able to, to to fly you around, and will it be mostly flying around cities, or will it, will it be intercity travel? What is the kind of the scope of the vision here? Yeah, um, I think a lot of that uh, will remain to be seen. Um, that the physics right now dictate not really long ranges. You know, Cora I think announced something like a hundred kilometer or maybe one hundred and fifty kilometer range. Um, you know, we're limited if we're using electricity, we're limited in range because batteries aren't particularly good. 
uh, I think I think there's a strong case for inner city travel because distances are reasonably short, but congestion is typically very high, and so it can take a long time to get somewhere. Um, and I think taking to the skies and taking advantage of this third dimension above us that is typically uh, extremely sparsely populated uh, can make a huge difference in people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. And how how do you see the the rotorcraft industry developing? In, in the future. So you've, you've just mentioned that one of the main goals of Kitty Hawk is to, to reduce congestion. Um, but do, do you see this as almost like a ubiquitous uh, third layer almost in travel, whereby we have cars on the road and then there are multiple layers above that where all these uh, rotorcraft can, can ferry, ferry people around the city? I would love to see that. I mean, that's, that's certainly my vision. Um, I think we're vastly underutilizing the space above our heads. Um, I think there are lots of difficulties in getting there. There's regulation, there's people's perception, there's going to be noise. Uh, but I think a lot of those are solvable. Hopefully all of those are solvable. And yes, I hope that, uh, hope that we are not building a vehicle that is only for uh, a special few people, but that this is something where, uh, where really airplanes, helicopters, whatever you want to call it, aircraft become really accessible to everybody from an everyday standpoint. Right. And in terms of the, um, the development of both the Flyer and the Cora, when can um, customers or, or enthusiasts expect kind of, you know, the first prototypes flying around or perhaps the first, first of these vehicles hitting the market? You talked about a project that Kitty Hawk has with, I think, New Zealand, whereby these uh, concepts are now being tested. But what is the, the general time frame that we're looking at? That is a great question. I wish I could tell you. Um, but hold tight, it won't be too long. Um, hopefully, I, again, I'm on the flyer team, and uh, hopefully we'll have something exciting to share this year, but I can't give you any further details than that. No, that's great. Well, I'll, I'll be looking forward to, to seeing those, because, um, I mean, the videos look, look absolutely, they look very exciting. So perhaps just as a, as a final question, um, what is an example of a, of a product that people are considering, you know, in terms of maybe machine learning or some of the other things that we've talked about throughout this conversation that are, you know, not possible yet because the technology hasn't quite matured yet, but th that you would personally like to see in the future? Yeah, I think, um, I think just in general, anything that moves has the potential to become autonomous. So, I mean, uh, self-driving cars are obviously a, a big buzz in the media right now, uh, and they're certainly, they're certainly coming. Um, there's some maturity issues to be worked out there. Uh, I think that will have an enormous impact on people's lives. Uh, but, but more generally, there's, there's so much potential for robotics to change every sort of object that moves. So I'm just super excited to see where the robotics industry is headed in the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah, that's absolutely a great point. I just, you know, just thought of, well, if you had a taxi service, you know, based on the Cora, for example, yeah, you could make that entirely autonomous. And then basically, yeah, you, d you wouldn't even need the pilot anymore. It would be entirely uh, and autonomous and, you know, driven by, by, by software. Yeah, that's a, a really exciting yeah, things to come in the future, I think. So, yeah, Mark, you know, thanks a lot for, for having this conversation. Where can listeners find out more about what you're doing? And also, you know, where can they find uh, a little bit more information about Kitty Hawk? Yeah, please visit us online. We're at kittyhawk.aero, A-E-R-O. Uh, hopefully there'll be more information there soon as we have a public launch sometime this year. Um, I have a website at 
markjcutler.com, which I do a poor job of keeping up to date, but I try every now and again to update it. Um, and would love to hear from anybody who's interested in talking more about autonomous vehicles or interested in working at Kitty Hawk. Absolutely, yeah. So I'll put all of those details in the show notes, and and I'm really excited. You know what the future holds in terms of autonomous vehicles. You know, th thanks a lot for having the conversation, Mark. Yeah, thanks so much, Andrew. It was great to talk to you. If you want to learn more about Mark and Kitty Hawk, then you can find show notes with links to more in-depth material at airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to personally support the show, then you can do so by subscribing or leaving a review on iTunes, sharing the show with your friends on social media, or becoming a patron on patreon.com forward slash airspace, which will also grant you access to exclusive material. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.